Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, October 8th, we're studying Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 to 32. Is the Lord just? Does he set the children's teeth on edge because the fathers have eaten sour grapes? The Lord upholds his justice in the face of such unjust accusations from his people in today's text. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you for having me, Tim. It's good to be here. So let's talk some context. Pastor Heckman, what do we have in Ezekiel 18? What should we know before, after, about the prophet's ministry that will help us with this chapter? So just a little bit about Ezekiel first. Uh, he had the role of both prophet and priest back in the uh, 6th century BC. So he was one of the Israelites who was exiled from Jerusalem after it had been conquered by Babylon. They sent various waves of exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And Ezekiel went with some of these waves of Israelites and so he had a really unique ministry in that he was with people who had received prophecy after prophecy to turn from their idolatry, and they hadn't listened. So God's judgment comes through here in the 6th century in the form of exile and destruction. And so Ezekiel was dealing probably with a lot of people who are uh, glum, maybe bitter, uh, seemingly hopeless perhaps. Uh, what's our future now? So God brings Ezekiel into the fold with these uh, post-exilic Israelites to not just call them to repentance and reflect on how they got into the situation in which they found themselves, but also preach to them about God is not, as, as we'll see, especially in this passage, God is not uh, vengeful, angry, uh God who's out to get you, but his justice is perfect and his compassion is restorative, as they would see in a lot of um, Ezekiel's words. But that, that's just a little bit about Ezekiel. He's a very difficult ministry task, and uh, it's good to know the people to whom he's speaking and, and what's led to these circumstances. So just a little bit about that. And the portions leading up to it, uh, chapter 17 is one of Quite a few. This is more on the law portion of Ezekiel's prophecy. A lot of oracles in rebuke of Israel, and if you look at chapter 17, it does a good job of setting up chapter 18 in terms of establishing God's uh, fair and right justice, where he reflects on Zedekiah, the king of Judea or uh, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, who was an unfaithful leader. He was supposed to remain in uh, Jerusalem after Babylon had come through and kind of overthrown it, but he rebelled and sought help from uh, Egypt. And then uh, uh, because of that, he received judgment. So God's saying, it's, it's, you know, it's obvious maybe to us, but 
these people who are a little bit stiff necked need to hear this. You know, your kings were unfaithful, you were unfaithful. So leading up into this chapter, it really uh, gives a good foundation for where is God's justice based. And it's in, you know, dealing with our sins. But even then, those last two verses of chapter 17, as I'm sure, uh, or last few verses, as I'm sure someone else has commented on uh, on the show, the the verse about the lofty uh, cedar of Israel having a sprig plucked from it, uh, which would be uh, the immediate context would be um, King Jehoiakim, um, who was preserved from death. Zedekiah was not. But then future application, of course, is Christ, who was plucked from you know, he is the root of Jesse um, and the uh, faithful branch to whom Jeremiah refers. And so this section is not without gospel, of course. It's really predominantly law, but it's not without its good news. And then the following chapter right after this, and this is kind of forming the sandwich around chapter 18, uh, the princes of Israel get a lament. And he uses the imagery of a tree. They've been uprooted. Um and you can just picture that, you know, once a mighty tree and then think of a, a strong wind coming and just, you know, tearing it out. You see all these roots laid bare and it's weak. And this is this is what this is the situation in which these princes have placed themselves. Um, Israel needs to know that their leaders and themselves are culpable for these sins. Um, but then even after this, you know, you get down oh, about. 12, 13 chapters, and Ezekiel begins to give them oracles of comfort. So a, a good picture of law and gospel in this book. And these chapters, though, are mostly law. Uh, That's right. <laughs> we will, we'll get some good gospel in chapter 18, but there, it, it just emphasizes the importance if you have one without the other, uh, one or the other will lose its force, and it really will not do its proper work. So uh, that's really what's setting up well, chapter 18, to see what is God's justice about and what is his mercy about. Mm. The, just the reminder of what we saw in chapter 17 concerning the kings and the picture you get of the kings there, and then the picture that's coming of the kings in, in chapter 19. It's almost like you've got two chapters that are very focused on the history of what happens. There's theology there, but the real—I mean, chapter 18 in between them really fleshes out the, the theology of what's going on in those two chapters. And so chapter mm-hmm. 18 is is significant for that immediate context and really for the whole book of Ezekiel. The, the theology that the Lord gives here in this chapter— is, is really foundational for the whole book, and I would say scripturally speaking as well. We're going to encounter some really important scriptural teachings in this chapter, and it's long. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go ahead and, and dig into it. Again, we're in Ezekiel 18, beginning at verse 1 today. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, 
withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous, he shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends it interest, and takes profit. Shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. I think we'll pause there. That's the first 18 <laughs> verses of this chapter. There is a bit of a breaking point because there's going to be another objection that comes up after that. But that, mm-hmm. that gives us the, the first part of this chapter. So it starts with this, the Lord brings up a proverb that's being repeated in Israel, and then basically he gives Ezekiel three case studies. That's kind of how I'd break this section down. So let's talk about the proverb. I mentioned this in the introduction. The proverb that's being spoken in the land of Israel is this. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. What does that proverb mean, and why does the Lord not want it spoken in Israel? Well, the proverb, pro, excuse me, proverb, as you said, was uh, apparently common in Israelite circles. They were speaking it a great deal, and it essentially means uh, God is punishing the wrong people. So the idea is if the fathers eat sour grapes, then the that carries on into the next generation unfairly where their teeth are on edge for what their fathers did. And if you look at it in a more of a pagan context, it's sort of, um, uh, I guess, a fatalist standard of justice that the pagans saw where uh, it argues that a, a deity doesn't care who gets punished a lot, as long as someone does. And it's kind of like this cosmic scale where if the fathers start singing, sinning a great deal, uh, someone needs to balance it out. So in order to do that, if the scale needs to be leveled, you shift a lot of punishment onto whoever needs to get it to balance that scale. And they think, Israel thinks, our fathers messed up, so we're getting the you know short end of the sticks, so to speak. And they, they looked at it in a pagan sort of way, that God is really um, kind of an angry uh, difficult God who, uh, he's, he's a God who's just like pagans, really. They were, they were basically saying he was unpredictable, accusing him of being vindictive and, and all this. And essentially they were victimizing themselves with this proverb. So God's not punishing the right people and we don't deserve this God is essentially what they were saying. Uh, our parents sin, why are we getting punished? Um, and, that's the long and short of that proverb. So it's it's interesting to look at it from Israel's perspective because we can see a little bit of this maybe in our own day. Uh, and we have to remember, I think a couple points are important to keep in mind. It's certainly true that 
what our parents do have an effect on us, uh, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. Um, their behaviors will affect us, create habits. Some, some of them are destructive. Some of them are constructive. And in a lot of ways, we're the products of our parents. So to a certain extent, we can look at the previous generations, even beyond our parents, and say, to a certain extent, because they were this way, I am this way. But this is not what God's talking about in terms of justice. The Israelites are saying, I'm not going to look at my own sin. Let's shift the blame to the previous generation, the previous two or three generations and say, we're not at fault here. We're just doing what we're doing because they did it, essentially. Uh, but God is not punishing the Israelites for someone else's sins. He's punishing them for their sins. And he really is trying to discourage this deflection of responsibility and accountability that the Israelites have seem to have no interest in taking on themselves. Um, you know, whatever in influence your upbringing might have had, the individuals are responsible for the sins that they commit. A, this is a huge theme in this passage. And this proverb, um, God dealing with it, it, it must have been pretty pervasive among Israel. And I don't know if it's ever mentioned anywhere else in scripture. I didn't bother to look that up, but it was um, <laughs> pervasive enough that God felt the need to single it out specifically. Uh, what do you mean by repeating this proverb? How much did they repeat it? How, far, how many generations back does it go? I don't know. But his response to it is simply, um, I treat everyone the same. My justice is not unfair. It is my standard, not yours, which harkens back to uh, Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. Uh, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So um, should you be punished for something your parents did? No. Um, will you potentially suffer from that? Yes. Uh, but what about your sins? Should you be punished for your sins? Absolutely. And that's, that's the whole point of these verses. It's mm -hmm. you are you are not being punished for what someone else did. You're being punished for what you did. You're, you're the ones in Babylon right now. You have prophet after prophet warn you of the consequences of your sin, and you essentially ignore them. So what God is doing in one sense is giving them his perfect standard of justice, which is you, you are getting what you deserve. But then in a sense, he's also, this will lead to his res restoration, as we'll see. And it's really guarding them from further destruction to themselves is what this whole exile is about. If I let this keep going, you're going to destroy yourselves, destroy your relationship with me. But here I am punishing you in order that I can restore you. That's what it's all, the goal always is. But he really needs to, God feels the need to, you know, really deal with this immediately saying, this proverb has no place among you because it's just not who I am, essentially. Right. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, as you were talking about, is there, is this mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures? I'm not sure that I recall this particular, you know, proverb phrased in this way anywhere else. I do, mm -hmm. as, as you were talking though, I, I was at least slightly reminded, and it's not quite the same thing that gets addressed, but in John chapter nine, where Jesus and his disciples meet that man who's born blind, and again, without digging into the theology of that, because there's a lot more going on than, than what is here, but one of the suggestions that the disciples do have for Jesus is that perhaps this man is born blind because his parents sinned. And again, there's mm -hmm. there's a lot more going on in that passage, and in the way Jesus' response goes, really takes it in a, a, a different direction than Ezekiel 18 goes. But it, at least I think it gives evidence that there, there is this thought that the, the parents' 
sin causes punishment for the children in an unfair way. And mm-hmm. and that's certainly what is in view here in Ezekiel 18. So Ezekiel then, he gives, or the Lord gives Ezekiel these three case studies to prove his mm-hmm. point that no, you're the unjust ones, O Israel, and the Lord is just in the ways that he deals with his people. And so he, he does this in, at least the way I, I read it, is by generation. Essentially, you've got a man, his son, and then his grandson— and each mm-hmm. one is is has its own his own characteristics, and so the Lord deals with him in, in each ways. The first generation, which is verses five through nine, is described as a righteous man who does what is just and right. So take us take us into this. What's what's going on in this first illustration, and what's the theology that we need to to pick out in the first case study? So that you're exactly right. He lays this out really systematically where he takes Israel case by case and says, here's some examples of my justice. And here, here's the standard by which you should measure yourselves. So I I thought this is a little bit of a side note, but Psalm 121 is what came to mind as soon as I read verse six, where he's giving the characteristics of here's what an unrighteous man does. And so by, you know, contrast, a righteous man wouldn't do it. But he talks about um, lifting his eyes up to the idols or eating upon the mountains, which would um, be an image of basically if you were an unrighteous man, you'd be wor- not only would you be worshiping idols, uh, but you're lifting your eyes up to the idols, not the hills or not to your creator, not the temple um, of God where he was present. Uh, and you would also typically make sacrifices and eat uh, by <laughs> by an idol um, on a mountain, on a high place. So it's a big contrast here in contrast to Psalm 121, where, where do I lift my eyes up to the hills? Um, and I, I look to the Lord. So, and then that sets the tone for the rest of the unrighteousness is this violation of the first commandment in verse six, where you are not fearing, loving, and trusting in God above all things. Well, the root of that is, is it gives, um, it gives rise to all the sins that follow after that. And one really important theological point here that I think we need to focus on is just the distinction between what um, what makes you righteous and what we think makes us righteous. Um, and if you look at this verse or this passage, verses five through nine, you might think, righteousness is something that we create something that we obtain on our own because what does it say it says the 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 one who is righteous and does what is just and right he is righteous so it sounds like you establish your right relationship with god by what you do uh you establish the you know this this salvific relationship with god by your own righteousness but um, the the commentary I worked with primarily, Horace Hummel wrote it for CPH. He has a really instructive quote here, and I thought, I, I don't think I can say it any better, so I should probably just say what he says. So here, here's what he has to say. Uh, since Ezekiel here is speaking of the righteous man in 18 verse 5, it is important that we recognize his actions as the good fruit produced by a good tree, not fruit that will make a bad tree good. So it's not as though um, this person is a bad tree and he transforms himself into a good tree by his works. It's, he's already a good tree. Uh, and that's the biggest point here. And he goes on to say the righteous man's deeds also in the civil realm are the fruit of his faith, the product of the gospel, which he believes. 
the righteousness God imputes to him as a member of his kingdom spills over into deeds of justice and righteousness in society. So that term imputed righteousness is important because it, it's something that comes from outside of you. And Ezekiel is basically here describing a man who has been giving been given God's righteousness. Here's what he will do as an outpouring of that righteousness. And uh, first you are justified before God, then that sanctification, the the life, the renewed life that has, as uh, we say in the scriptures and the confessions, new desires, uh, spiritual desires from, from the Holy Spirit. Um, that's the order. It's not uh, kind of reverse, you know, sanctification. We do all these good things and then we become righteous. It's keeping that order correct. Uh, and it it's probably good to point out, even if you um, do good things, they are not righteous in the first place if you don't already have God's righteousness because they're flowing not from faith, but from fear and, and selfishness if you do those good things. So it's very easy to look at a passage like this and argue well, isn't Ezekiel saying, I can make myself right before God by what I do, and that's how I can procure his favor, um, and that's the way God's justice works, is he takes a look at people and says, oh, you're good, you're doing great things, you're bad, you're not. No, it's a complete gift, and it's a befuddling one, because we like to think it's a little bit more transactional, because that makes more sense to us, but it's purely a gift. Um and the one who is righteous and uh, has righteousness, those righteous deeds will follow. That's essentially what Ezekiel is saying with uh, the father here. Um, and it's not meant to be simply instructive. It's for our comfort uh, because we know that righteousness is not some ladder we have to keep climbing and uh, our treadmill we have to keep running on. It's purely given to us and um, God brings forth good works as a result of that so just a a point that's easy to gloss over in this passage but one that needs to be i think really emphasized as well Uh, this understanding of righteousness particularly in the passages like this in ezekiel 18 and elsewhere in the old testament i think of of several of the psalms that describe the righteous person uh, that understanding that that righteousness is always a righteousness that comes through faith you know, I mean, think of the the prophet Habakkuk, who would have been around this same time period, likely prophesying. You know, back in 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 Judah, where where Ezekiel is in Babylon. You know, he's the one that gives us that that beautiful quote that the righteous will live by his faith, which is, I mean, that's going to be foundational for this righteousness that Ezekiel is talking about here. He is the man is righteous and then does what is just and right. It, it's a gift of God that then flows forth into the fruits of faith. And those two things are, are very you know, intimately connected here in Ezekiel, but they are put in their proper order as they are elsewhere in the scriptures. And that, that understanding is foundational for reading this chapter and for really the whole Bible. I mean, this is, this is essentially the key that opened the Bible to Luther when he realized you know, the mm-hmm. righteous will live by his faith, that the righteousness of God is the gift that God gives to you through faith, first that then does go forth into the fruits and so that understanding is is huge for this chapter in particular as we read about the righteous man here in the the first case study and just to echo what you said the fact that the very first way he's described is by not participating in idolatry the matter of the first commandment you know where is his faith that i think ties right into what what you're saying about the matter of what does it mean for this man to be righteous so the first generation the father 
He's righteous, and so the Lord says he's going to live. All right, there's the Lord's justice in the first case study. The second case study deals with the son, and the son is, well, he's not righteous, so what's going to happen to the son? And, and Pastor Heckman, maybe maybe just give us a few things about, we may have to take this on, on both sides of the break. We had a couple minutes here, about two or three minutes. So so take us into now the, the second case study. What happens with the son of this man? Short answer, he dies. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty blunt. Where what I, Ezekiel frames it, he shall surely die is the portion of thir- verse 13. He doesn't pull any punches. Uh, this is an unrighteous man who, and again, this is really important to remember. It's not as though this is a righteous man who has sinned and God just simply says, well, I don't like you as much as this other righteous man. This is an unrighteous man who is wholeheartedly rejected the Lord, which I don't know if we need to get into this on the other side of the break, but it calls to mind uh, a common question. Why don't all people die in the manner that this sinful, unrighteous man dies? Uh, In other words, why are some people saved and not others? And this is one of the questions that befuddles everyone. It's not just Christians, it's non-Christians. They have a very hard time processing this. And it, it does come back once again to God's justice is how is it fair? And that, that's a very key term, fairness and human uh, reasoning. How is it fair that some people will spend eternity with Christ in uh, the new creation while others will spend eternity apart from Christ and eternal and eternal suffering in hell? Uh, it's a pretty heavy question. Um and I, th- I think you can get into that theology just a little bit here where you're comparing these two generations. Here's a father who was righteous. Here's a son who was unrighteous. Why wouldn't God do what was necessary to get both of them uh, into, into paradise, into eternal life? So I don't know if we want to take that break now and <laughs> get in the, I don't want to get well, halfway. Why don't you let's let's break. let's do it this way. What are some of the wrong answers that people give to this question? And then on the other side right. we'll pick up the right answers. Good. That that sounds great. So the probably the two primary ones are uh the, the free will problem, uh where people say man's ability to has the ability to either choose God or reject God. So it it takes it, people say it gets God off the hook. So it says God does, you know, 99.82% of the work. And then you've got that last little point, whatever percent to do. You've just got to make that choice. And if you choose God, fantastic. If you don't, you're, you're out of here, uh, which is contradictory to the scriptures because we're, we're spiritually dead uh, and cannot choose God. It'd be sort of like saying a, a dead car battery can choose to come back to life. That's just not how it works. Uh, and then the other one is simply that God picks people uh, to be saved and picks people to be damned, uh, which is we we call that double predestination. Uh, Lutheran Christians do defend the doctrine of single predestination, uh, where God, it's the teaching that God's grace is what saves us. God does choose us to be saved, but the, the flip side is not true that God chooses people to be damned, you know, like he flips a coin or something. Those are the, the two probably primary doctrines that are used to um, defend God or try to try to loosen this tension or resolve it, but they simply are not defensible when you hold them up against the scriptures. All right, so let's pick up what the scriptures say on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We are talking Ezekiel chapter 18 with Pastor Joel Heckman. We'll be right back. 
please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, October 8th. We're studying Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 to 32 with Pastor Joel Heckman of St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, you raised the question that does come up when we read this section of Ezekiel. Why, why is the father saved and his son not? And you started to give us some of the answers that are offered to this question, you know, why some, not others. Some of the answers that are given are, well, it's it's your fault either way. If you if you make the right choice, you're saved. If you don't make the right choice, you're damned. Well, that's that's not it, you said. And then the other choice is what's sometimes called double predestination, that if you're saved, that's because God chose you to be saved, and if you're damned, that's because God chose you to be damned. And you said that doesn't work either. So, Pastor Heckman, if those are the two wrong answers that are offered, what is the correct scriptural answer that is given to this question? Well, not not to get too long-winded, but there's uh, there's a few important points to make. Uh, first, let me read again. Horace Hummel really states it well. He's talking about uh, in terms of your thought process as a believer when we get into that free will discussion. In, in terms of um, you know, do you make a decision for Christ? That's some common phrasing that people use today. So here's here's how uh, Horace Hummel response to that. He says, to a repentant believer's consciousness, it will indeed appear as though he of his own free will has made the decision to repent and believe in Christ. Yet theologically, we will stress that the decision was not really his, that a fallen sinner is by nature simply incapable of making that choice. Fallen man retains the freedom to refuse and reject God, but has lost the ability to get a new heart and a new spirit. So the abbreviated answer would be, uh, we possess the freedom to reject God as sinful human beings, but we do not have the ability to gain or secure that righteousness that God gives. Um, and I heard, uh, I think it's one of my classmates used this analogy really well, um, Andy Jones. He, uh, he wrote a, a blog post comparing it to a trash receptacle where uh, trash is not a great picture for God's grace, but for this, it'll, it'll have to do, um, just think of it as something else. Uh, but imagine us like trash cans and our only ability is to, um, be able to close the top of that lid. Uh, but if we are saved, it's, uh, God dropping his grace into that receptacle. It's not even us reaching out to grab it. It's just being given to us. And, and how can you defend this with the scriptures? Cause logically it's, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem fair, doesn't make sense to our minds, but really there are many passages defending this notion or this teaching that we are dead in our sins. Colossians 2.13, uh, if I can read that really quickly here, and even uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we use that one 
quite a bit to defend that we are saved by grace. It's a gift of God. That first verse in that chapter sets up that teaching very well because it says, you who were once dead in your sins. Uh, here's what Colossians 2.13 has to say. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So notice the passive character and the active character in that text. You are the one who is dead. God made you alive. It's not God uh, invited you to become alive and then you you know, up and say, yeah, okay, God, thanks. Uh, some, some people compare it to, you know, Lazarus being called to life. It's not, Jesus did not walk up to the tomb of Lazarus and say, Lazarus, make a decision to come back to life. He gives him life. And that's exactly the picture of salvation. Um, and you have to keep that in mind too. The, the, the unrighteous man is, again, he, he's not condemned because uh, he just isn't quite as good as this other guy or he didn't make the right decision. He didn't have the capability in the first place. He is condemned because he rejected God's grace. It's quite simply his fault. Uh, but the righteous person uh, is someone who who has been given God's grace. And that's really, truly, uh, it's important to emphasize, first of all, because it maintains the integrity of God's revelation in the scriptures, where if we interpret it any differently, we are moving away from an, a faithful interpretation to an interpretation that puts our reason in a kind of a magisterial position that's above scriptures rather than ministerial, which is below the scriptures. It still has a place, but it needs to submit to whatever God, God has revealed. Um, and and the, the emphasis is not to say, oh, this makes sense uh, or, oh, yeah, it clicks now or, yeah, OK, that seems fair because it's never going to make that complete sense to us. It's, uh, as Paul says, it's foolishness to those who don't believe. Um, for us, it's, it's meant to be a comforting teaching. Um, getting back to, you know, everything with predestination, it's a complete gift. Uh, will we die if we commit the sins that are described by Ezekiel? Uh, the answer is no. And in, in that salvific sense, um, we, the wages of sin is death, uh, as Paul says. Uh, so certainly we have that physical death, but um, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So uh, the righteous person, though he die, yet shall he live, as Christ says. And that's the tension in which we need to live. Um, it's not an easy one in which to live. It's very difficult to defend especially to the unbeliever but even even fellow christians who have a difficult time um coming to grips with this it's simply we say this is what the lord has revealed this is what we teach and preach and confess and it's not meant to push you away or you know say uh you know you can't have this it's it's meant to say repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit and, um i think that's important to to really point out here Right. I mean, this this question, why some, not others, we simply live in the tension that the scriptures give. What what do the scriptures give to that that answer? And and the answer that you've said is, is exactly right. Why are some saved? Because God has given them grace. He has saved them totally his doing. I mean, it's if you want to say it, it's God's fault. He he did it. That's the answer why some are saved. Why are others not saved? That's their fault. They they asked for it they wanted it that's what 
that's what they get. It's their fault. And and that's the answer that the scriptures give. That's the answer that Ezekiel's working with here, which again is, is why it's so important to recognize what the righteous person, what is his righteousness? It's the gift mm-hmm. of God. And and that's what Ezekiel's working with here as he goes through these case case studies. So he's he's done the he's got the father in verses five to nine. He's got the son in verses 10 through 13, then he's got the the grandson in verses 14 through 18. And the grandson goes, he he recognizes the sin of his father, the unrighteousness of his father, and by God's grace is brought back to the righteousness of his grandfather. Make sure I get those those right. And so he, he lives like the grandfather. So again, it's just the difference in generation. The Lord gives these three different case studies to show that no, he's not setting the children's teeth on edge because the fathers ate sour grapes. He is being just in the ways that he judges these various generations. And I, I do think, I just, just put this out there before we read the rest of the text, I do think that this last generation in particular is is important as this text is going to be given to the people. Because the the people have seen in their own lives, they've seen their fathers or grandfathers be righteous or unrighteous. And I, I think that's where this last generation is, that the fact that it's a righteous generation, it's a call to the people that Ezekiel's preaching to, repent. Do mm-hmm. Follow the example of this guy. Believe the word that's being preached to you right now. And I do think that's a significant you know, application to the people. So let's see. Ezekiel's got plenty more to say in this chapter. We're picking up again in verse 19 now. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him, for the righteousness that he has done he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, Are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Ezekiel 18, 
verses 19 to 32. So Pastor Heckman, in verse 19, the Lord anticipates an objection that the people will will bring. Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? What's the objection and how does the Lord answer? So first Israel was blaming God for misplaced punishment. Now it's saying, well, shouldn't the son get in trouble for what his dad did? So it, it's kind of like they're saying, um, well, if we're guilty, uh, which they're, you know, they're saying just for the sake of argument, because they still don't think they're guilty. Uh, if we're guilty and we're getting punished for something we didn't do, shouldn't the son get the same lot? So if they still have this attitude. The argument is slightly different, but it's still this attitude. Well, if we're getting treated unfairly, then someone else ought to get treated unfairly. And God's answer is simple. It's the same. You're responsible for your sins. Quit trying to blame shift and repent. Uh, your righteousness is given by God and your sins are your own. So um, quit trying to shift the focus or the blame on other people uh, because that only prolongs the inevitable uh that you'll you'll still need to repent and these the consequences and the thought of these sins will continue until you turn things around um but another thing to note in here uh, on top of the, the fact that the answer is the same even with this per, you know anticipated objection you, you're responsible for your own sins god says the soul who sins shall die uh which here in this context death would be con eternal condemnation life would be eternal salvation. Um, he doesn't say the righteous man who sins will die. Um, because if you don't focus on that, we've talked on th about this a little bit, but he, he, if he emphasizes it a couple times in the passage, I think it's worth emphasizing a couple times in our treatment of it. Um, you might read this and say, well, I sin. Uh, am I going to go to hell? Am I going to die like this guy? <laughs> Uh, and, and the answer is, well, are you righteous through faith in Christ? Um, the answer is no, you won't die as this man does, even though you sin, because again, back to Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death, which is essentially repeating what Ezekiel says. Paul says that, but the gift of God is eternal life and treat Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the, the truth is getting back to God's justice and this so pervasive theme of God's justice, everyone who sins deserves that sort of death, that sort of eternal condemnation. Uh, the soul who sins shall die, but through faith in the gift of righteousness in Christ or here with the covenant relationship and the trust and the promise of the Messiah for the Old Testament people, um, the person who is righteous will live. So the righteous person doesn't need to live in constant uncertainty or fear that, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. What if God's justice turns on the dime and he all of a sudden changes his mind about me? God, that's not who God is. That's what the people of Israel are accusing him of being uh, because he just kind of shoots out his punishment like a Nerf gun at the closest person he could find. <laughs> but no, that's that's not something you have to be afraid of because the, the Lord says the righteous one shall live. And are, are you righteous? Uh, well, do you have faith in Christ? And the answer is yes. Um, so it's it's really, it needs to be hammered home because it, if we forget that, it leads to a great deal of angst and consternation and, and really uh, an improper fear of God not the one that God calls us to. In this section, Ezekiel <clears throat> continues to offer case studies. He does it in a, a more repetitive way than he did in the first section, but that's that's not 
un or that's not unusual for Ezekiel for him to be repetitive. He often does this, and and the case studies in the first half were really one generation to the next. Now the case studies deal with one person throughout the course of his life. And so on, on the one hand, well, what about the case of a wicked person that is an unbeliever who turns to faith? What happens to him? And then the second one is, well, what about a righteous person, a believer who turns away from that faith? What about him? So, Pastor Heckman, in, take the, we've got about t- 11 minutes here, so I want to kind of take these two oh together if we can. <laughs> How, mm-hmm. how, because I, I do think they go together, that the, the Lord wants to guard against perhaps hopelessness in the one case. There's, it's not hopeless for the wicked, but he also wants to guard against complacency for the righteous. So let's try to take those two together if we can. Mm-hmm. So especially, basically, verses 21 through 28, and, and these are kind of meshed together, these teachings, where on the one hand, the Lord uh, teaches repent about repentance. Repentance is God's work. Um, but what does that look like? It's where you return to the Lord. We see that in Joel chapter 2. We hear that in Lent every year, uh, but hopefully on a weekly basis from the pulpit. Uh, in our confession of sins, we return to the Lord, we receive his forgiveness, and then we live a, a new life marked by faithful, godly living. That's what repentance is all about. Um, so the Lord draws you back and he says, I am not an unresponsive, cold, rigid God. I am a compassionate God. Um, and I, when, when people repent, I give forgiveness. I don't say, no, you, it's too late for you. Uh, if there is repentance, there is forgiveness. So, uh, that, 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 that's kind of the one side of it where we underscore that God is a compassionate God and we have to look at him through the lens of Christ. Because if if you look at him, so many people say, God's, man, how could a loving God send people to hell? You're not looking at him through Christ. Uh, God's justice requires that, um, that, that the one who does not repent uh, is eternally condemned. But his grace is what is really what defines God, his justice alongside of his grace where he gives salvation to undeserving sinners. So repentance is that means by which God draws us back where, um, you know, don't be complacent. Don't be, or sorry, don't be hopeless and don't think, well, I've sinned uh, and, and there's no hope for me. God, you know, even even that person on his deathbed who uh, confesses that Jesus is Lord is um, saved from their sins. Uh, but then on the flip side, you can talk about, well, um, there, there's this teaching once saved, always saved, and that's common amongst uh, various Christian denominations, which essentially says once you come to faith, if you really have faith, you're good. Um, this passage really, um, really contradicts that heavily. It's getting against complacency, I think, where if you know if you teach once saved, always saved, that'll lead to complacency in the sense that well, if I'm saved, I don't need to do anything. If I'm not saved don't need to do anything. Nothing can do any either way. Um, so it's problematic on a couple levels, just kind of wrapping this particular portion up. Uh, if, if you, uh, if you teach that, first of all, it's unbiblical, uh, because God is clearly addressing through Ezekiel people who trust in God as their savior from sin. They're without a doubt saved, but there's still this warning. Uh, some of these righteous individuals, if they neglect repentance uh, and faithfulness, uh, they will be condemned as an unrighteous person and become unsaved, essentially. So once saved, always saved is not, it's, it's just not a teaching of the scriptures. Um, 
And uh, the second problem with this, I, I think, is a little probably a little bit more terrifying. Uh, if you really think once saved, always saved, there's very little confidence in your salvation from day to day. Because uh, here's kind of how I put it. If, if people who once said they were Christian fall away from the faith and you argue that they were never Christians in the first place, well, how do you know that you're actually a Christian? What if you're in the same boat as those people who you thought were Christian, but then they fell away and they never really were? So they would respond, well, I show I'm a Christian by my good works, which, of course, that's true. We, the, the Holy Spirit uh, is – the evidence of that is in good works, but that's not the guarantee of salvation, if that makes sense. So uh, the problem is when you, you quit going to church, you haven't been to church for a few months, or um, you, know, you said something that was terrible. Uh, your prayers haven't been what they've been like. Uh, then it's like, where's my confidence? Because I'm not producing those good works to demonstrate I'm saved. Um, so here's the, just kind of to wrap it up. Uh, repentance is important, and it's showing that God is merciful. But, but there's also the very important teaching that once you become a Christian, there's a possibility you could lose your faith. That's the law. If you say, I don't think good works are important, well, your faith could die if you neglect these things. But then the good news is, all right, so you're failing in your good works. You're not praying. You're not going to church. You're not being very Christ-like. Well, do you confess your sins? Uh, yes. Well, then hear God's grace. Your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go and sin no more. So that yet another tension in which we have to live where good works don't save us. Um, they are certainly evidence of faith, but they are not what saves you. Um, that righteousness that we talked about before is, is absolutely something that Christ gives. Our confidence is not in our good works. It's not in the faith that just sits back and says, I can live however I want. I don't have to listen to God. That's a surefire way to kill it. Um, your confidence is in Christ alone. And then from that, you joyfully go forth. And you do these good works and you don't worry about, uh, I prayed yesterday, but I didn't pray today. You just say, Lord, forgive me, uh, forgive me my sin and help me to do better next time. And, and the Lord forgives you your sins and gives you his spirit um, and sends you out to do those good works. So a lot, a lot more we could say about that. I hope I haven't cut any corners, so to speak, but. No, I, I think that was, I think that was a helpful helpful summary of those two examples. And and if ever there was a text that the proper distinction between law and gospel is necessary, it's this one. I mean that I, that's mm -hmm. true for the whole scriptures, obviously. But certainly in a text like this, where where Ezekiel is preaching both to those who who on the one hand perhaps are going to fall into despair because they think it's hopeless for them, and and the Lord has no no word for them. Man, there's the word that's given to them. And then, well, what about the one who's who's got faith but is becoming complacent? There's a word there as well for them. And it's that matter of properly distinguishing the law and the gospel here that's so important to understand and especially to apply this section of the scriptures. Now, the, the Lord really applies it and brings it home himself in the last three verses, verses 30 through 32. And here you really do see the heart of the Lord shine through that the the whole point of this chapter and what he's doing, you know, in chapter 17 and 19, what's going on there in Judah and the judgment that's coming, what's happening to these kings, what's the Lord doing in all this? Well, he's trying to bring his people to repentance and faith because he doesn't want them to die. I mean, I think it, that that's what's happening in verses 32, 30 through 32. So Pastor Hackman, with about four minutes here, Bring it home with these verses. How how does how does this section in particular help to summarize and point us to our Lord and Savior Jesus? 
Well, it's especially that last verse, verse 32, is the one to which many people latch, onto which many people latch with Ezekiel is perhaps the primary uh, evidence for God's goodness and God's love is I have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord. Um, so the accusation, kind of the thread running throughout all this in terms of Israel's objection is you're unpredictable, God, and you're unfair. And how can we trust a God like you to be merciful when we, we, we need that mercy? And so what does the Lord say is uh, we, we talk about the word schadenfreude, um, that I I think I pronounced that correctly. Uh, Horace Hummel brings us up. The Lord takes no delight in the misfortune or the the pain of others. That's not not how God operates. Um, we I I refer to it as as I was kind of thinking of these notes as God's gracious predictability, where He delights when uh, a sinner repents. And um, think about the parable of the ninety nine sheep and the one sheep who goes astray. God doesn't delight in booting that sheep further out of the flock. Uh, he, he goes out and searches for it and brings that one sheep back. Um, and so, uh, I, I think this is really important to emphasize because there really isn't any kind of unconditional love like it in the world, uh, because there's no other Christ. There's only one Christ, only one God who has given us Christ and, and his spirit. Uh, you look at the culture, uh, if you want to be accepted by the culture, uh, they are unpredictable. Um, you know, they the, the the cultural scriptures, as I say, are constantly being rewritten in terms of what do you need to do? What do you need to say? How do you need to look to be accepted by the majority of people in the wider, wider sphere of our, our social fabric? Um, but even even on top of that, you know, com- comparing them p- to pagan gods, you know, you can never be sure if the deity to who you worship, whatever that deity may be, with apart from God and Christ, these false deities that people worship, you can never be sure if they accept you. Uh, you can never be sure if your deeds, if your life, the, the sum total of all that is enough to tip those scales, so to speak, in your favor. But God is graciously predictable. If you sin, um, there is punishment. There are consequences for that sin. Uh, but if there is repentance, there is forgiveness. If you are unfaithful, the Lord remains faithful. Um, if you have faith in Christ, you're saved from sin's curse. When you fail to follow God's will, he will continue to love you. Um, and, and so many other things that we could say that are rock solid truths, promises of God. You know, Jesus will never die again. Satan will never overcome his church, all these things. It all comes back to the gracious predictability of God that that really paints a different picture than Israel is painting. They say, God, you're unpredictable. The Lord says, no, I treat everyone the same. I'm gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So uh, for, for people who are, again, terrified of their sins, you say, well, the Lord is merciful. Uh, repent and be baptized. For those who are complacent and sitting in their sins or shifting blame, you'd say, well, God is a God of justice and there's consequences for that. But again, you need to come back to the Lord does not delight in the death of anyone and he delights to show mercy to everyone. So um, that's that's the big gospel breakthrough here. And it, it's took the whole chapter to get to it. I mean, there, there's other gospel in there, but that might be the one of the most um, uh, powerful ones to, to drive home, especially for Israel, but also for us. <laughs> 
The Lord does not delight in the death of anyone. Turn, live. Good news from the prophet Ezekiel. Pastor Joel Heckman is the pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma, helping us today with Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 to 32. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel, comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.